All right, turn with me again in your Bibles this morning to Revelation chapter 5. This is the throne room, Act 2, Part 1. Remember that. So this is a continuation of the vision that John has as he is called up into the control tower, if you will, for a much different view. Things are not what they appear to be. And I want to remind you that the context of this of this epistle, this revelation of Jesus Christ is to the embattled church. And the more I read Revelation chapter one, verses, verse three, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. The more I ponder that verse and the more I study in this book, the more convinced I am that the book of Revelation is of incredible relevance to the church today, really the church of every age. And as I said when we started, its focus is not on world events and the characters portrayed, the beasts, the dragon, but on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And, and its intent is to pull our attention away from this world and to put it on him. As we move from chapter four into chapter five, John is called up for a different perspective. When we saw in chapter four, he is invited up. We spent considerable time uh, a couple of weeks ago talking about the nature of worship, what it looked like, what it meant to, uh, to be sanctified in the presence of God. And chapter four ends with a focus on the character of God and the source of their praise, if you remember, as we move from chapter four to chapter five, was God's power in creation. There's a little bit of a hint of a change as we read chapter five this morning, and I hope you'll pick up on that. But chapter four ends with verse 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. There is a shift in focus, and if you will, a rising crescendo starting in chapter four that will build as we go through chapter five, and it will clue us in as to why we are here. Chapter four focuses on creation, and the natural question that we should ask is, why are we here? What is our purpose? What is the nature and purpose of God's will? When we adjust the lens of John's vision from chapter four to chapter five, we see a shifting from the focus of creation in chapter four to redemption in chapter five. What is scripture telling us here? God created the world for a purpose. So last time in chapter four, we learned one of the primary functions of worship is a recognition and a submission to the creator creature relationship. Um, we use in our home, and I would love to say we used it every day, but we were not quite that good. But we, we use Spurgeon's Catechism with the kids. Um, written in 1855, and I don't know if you knew this interesting little tidbit. Spurgeon did the Catechism in 1855 at a mere 21 years of age. Um, 
pretty advanced theologian at 21 years old. But the first question of the catechism is, what is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is what? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. And it leads immediately into a very important question. God created man to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. Something devastating happened, though. In the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned, they went from walking with God in the cool of the day. After they sinned, they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What happened? They immediately withdrew from his presence. They hid themselves. They tried to cover themselves up. So it's a natural question. How can we, the creature, enjoy the creator? If God created us to glorify him and enjoy him, how can we do that when sin is in the way? Well, the answer is we must be redeemed. For God to fulfill his purpose in creation, he redeems his creation. And it's in that backdrop that we begin our study in Revelation chapter 5. And there, there are three points in the book of Revelation. We'll see verses 1 through 5, the sealed scroll. We'll see the Lamb victorious come out of the shadows of the throne, if you will, in verses 6 or 7. And then we'll see that crescendo of worship from verses 8 through 14 as all of creation exalts and rejoices in the work of the Redeemer. So we're only going to look at verses 1 through 5 this morning. Look on your face. All 14 verses at one time? No, just verses 1 through 5 this morning. Point number one in Revelation 5 is the sealed scroll. And he says this, John says, I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. There are three primary observations that jump out at me about verse one. First observation is the right hand. In the Greek, it's the dexian. It is wrong hand there. I had the left hand up. It is the hand of power. In Revelation 1.16, we find that in his right hand, he held the seven stars. We talked about that. The seven stars being um, the seven elders of the seven churches. Revelation 1.17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his, what, right hand on me saying, fear not, I'm the first and the last. We see this term come back up over and over in the book of Revelation. Revelation 120, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. Revelation 2.1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. When scripture repeats itself, what does that mean? Yes, scripture is emphasizing something very important about God. And when it's talking about his right hand, it is referring to his power. Why is this important? Remember, the promise of the book of Revelation, as it's written to the church, 
is that this will be a message of incredible encouragement to the church. The church is in battle. If we look at the time and the context in which this is written by John to the seven churches, what are they going through? They're going through all sorts of tribulation, persecution, uh, martyrdom. The churches have problems. They have failings. They have false teaching to contend with. And everything that seems possible that could go wrong with the seven churches is going wrong. And the emphasis when, when, we, when we read this and we listen to it and we understand it and we apply it is that it brings us incredible comfort and joy rather than a picture that we're to be scared of and shy away from. And, and the book of Revelation historically in the church has been kind of avoided. And for those that tackle it, it's become um, fantasy or uh, fanat- uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, fantasy sensationalized thank you jesse jesse's always there for a word of encouragement timely thank you but we see the picture of the right hand psalm 26 says this now i know that the lord saves his anointed he will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand psalm 63 8 my soul clings to you your right hand upholds me so the first thing we see as John is seeing this vision is the right hand of God holding the scroll. The second thing is, where is God? He mentions it again. We'll see it later as we read in chapter five. Where is God? As we're reading it, he has a posture. He's seated on the throne. Again, emphasized. Here he is in a ruling posture. Turn to uh, Hebrews chapter 8. And Jesse touched on this this morning in our Bible study. And I am amazed and incredibly encouraged that the Spirit of God superintends our, our teaching and our preaching. You would have thought, by as I connected the dots listening to Jesse teach this morning, that he and I spent three hours talking to each other and coordinating. Didn't happen. We're studying 1 Kings chapter 6 in our Bible study and Revelation chapter 5. And the overlap of the message of Scripture is unbelievable. But in Hebrews chapter 8, and remember the theme of Hebrews is simply this. Christ is better. Christ is better. Everything in the Old Testament is compared to Christ. And the ultimate outcome of that comparison, that juxtaposition between the Old Testament established uh, establishment of the temple of God and all of the things that went into it is they were all a picture of who Christ and he is better. There were those in the early new Testament church that wanted to return to the old Testament practices and the writer of Hebrews, I believe Paul rightly lays out the case that Christ is better than all of them. They were all type and shadow and picture of what was to come that was ultimately fulfilled in Christ. So when you have the real thing, why go back? Hebrews 8.1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Where is he? He's at the right hand of the throne. 
Hebrews 12, 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is, what? Seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews 10, verse 1. If you will, turn to Hebrews 10. Those of you that have your... Um, your actual Bibles, not your digitals. Because I want you to hold your finger there because I want to go back to a verse in Hebrews chapter 10 in just a few minutes. There will be a test. In Hebrews 10 verse 1, it says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. Listen to verse four, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and of goats to take away sins. So why the sacrifices in the Old Testament if they had no power to take away sin? Well. Paul lays out the case that it was a reminder to Old Testament Israel of their sinfulness and the fact that they needed a sacrifice. Verse 5, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. What does God the Father take pleasure in? And and specifically, the obedience of his beloved son in whom he is well pleased. Jesse laid out the case this morning, rightfully so, that Christ had to come in the flesh and perfectly walk the walk and fulfill all righteousness. Burn offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then look at verse 7. Then I, Jesus said, behold, I have come to do your will. I want you to bookmark this. Hold your finger right here. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, for it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Did you catch that? We're going to talk about the scroll in just a minute. What is the scroll with the seven seals? Jesus gives us a hint right here. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And when Jesus had finished doing the will of the Father, verse 12 says, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 15, 25, for he must reign, what, until he has put all enemies under his feet. Again, a repeated emphasis that God is sovereignly ruling in power and holds a scroll in his hand as he sits on the throne. The third observation about verse 1 I want to point out is that John sees a, a scroll, a sealed scroll. What, what do you see about that? What does the scripture say about the sealed scroll? How much is written on the scroll? Front and back. Now, 
What does that bring to your mind when you think of something written front and back? Hey, there's a lot to say, right? But, but not only is there much to say, but it's full. There's not an unwritten portion here, left to right. Scripture shows us that this, this sealed scroll is complete in its writing. It's filled up. There's nothing left to write. There is no rest of the story, as Paul Harvey used to say. So John sees a filled up scroll, and the word scroll in the Greek is biblion. It is, as some people might say, papyrus or papyrus, as properly said. Only some people would say that, Mark, not everyone. That's right. A papyrus roll which is a, a written document. It is um, how paper was made in ancient times. And I remember I told you to hold your finger in Hebrews chapter 12. What did Jesus say was contained in the scroll in Hebrews 12? The will of the Father concerning the Son. I must do what is written of me in the scroll. And that is the will of the Father concerning the Son. We may call this redemptive history. As we unpack what is in the scroll, I, I will argue that it is pointing out God's <laughs> picture, his declared sovereign purpose and plan for all of redemptive history. Start to finish. Remember, chapter four emphasized the creative work. Now we're seeing the redemptive work. And we've, we've heard mention of the book or the scroll before. It's mentioned in Revelation 3, 5 to the letter to the church in Sardis. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of what? The book, Life. Jesse, you also touched on that this morning as well. So how have we unlocked or understood the imagery that we've seen so far in the book of Revelation? How have we done that? Do we Google pictures of it? How do we understand the imagery? And these are pictures to illustrate truth. How do we understand them? What is the proper hermeneutic here? Compare scripture with scripture, right? So I want to give you some scripture this morning that will help us understand the contents of this scroll, because not much is said in Revelation 5 about what is in it. Now, we'll see that the object of praise that breaks out after one is identified to open the scroll points back to what we're going to talk about. But let's let's use scripture to teach us here. There are four Old Testament passages that I want to give you this morning. So I'm going to ask you to, um, to buckle up. Let's look at scripture here. It's Isaiah 29, 9 through 14. We're going to look at Ezekiel 1, 26 through 3, 3. Daniel chapter 7, 1 through 10. And Daniel chapter 12, 1 through 4. Those four passages. And then after I read those passages, I want to draw some conclusions to help us piece together what scripture is teaching us here. In Isaiah chapter 29. 9 through 14. I remember Isaiah 
um, very well. It was the first message I ever preached when I was 15 years old. Isaiah chapter one. The ox knows his owner and his master's crib, but Israel does not know me. That was almost 30 years ago. That's crazy. 31 years ago. So the, the prophecy of Isaiah, some have called it the gospel of Isaiah, rightfully so, is dealing with a rebellious Israel. So in Isaiah 29, God speaking to Isaiah says, astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk, but not with wine. Stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep. And has closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your heads, the seers. And the vision of all of this has become to you like words of a book that is sealed. When men give it one to, to one who can read, saying, read this. He says, I cannot, for it is sealed. And when they give the book to one who cannot read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot read. And the Lord says, because as people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their heart, while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold, I will do wonderful things with his people with wonder upon wonder and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish. And the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Hidden. Ezekiel chapter 1. Does, does this ring a bell when every letter to the seven churches had the same refrain? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In Ezekiel chapter 1, Jesse referenced that. Jesse didn't have time to read it this morning, so I'm going to pick up the mantle and read it for him. But I'm going to start in verse 26. But I want you to notice the first part of Ezekiel is Ezekiel's vision of seraphim. The angels, the angelic beings around the throne of God. Almost an identical vision to what John has in Revelation chapter 4. We pick up in verse 26. And above the expanse over their heads, that is the angels' heads, there was a likeness of a throne, an appearance like sapphire almost identical in description to what we read in Revelation 4. And seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance, and upward from what, he, from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire. And there was a brightness around him, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. So was the appearance of the, the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face. And I heard the voice of one speaking. And he said to me, son of man, stand on your feet and I will speak to you. And as he spoke to me, the spirit entered into me and set me on my feet. And I heard him speaking to me. And he said to me, son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. The descendants also are impudent and stubborn. I send you to them and you shall say to them, thus says the Lord God, 
And whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, be not afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words. Though briars and thorns are with you, and you sit on scorpions, be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. And you shall speak with my words to them, whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house. But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me. Listen to this. And it had writing on what? The front and the back. Sound familiar? And there was written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. And he said to me, son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me the scroll to eat. And he said to me, son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. And I ate it. And all right, Daniel chapter seven, Daniel chapter seven. And here we have the first 10 verses. And for sake of time, I'm not going to read them, but it is a description of the vision that John, that Daniel has during the first year of the reign of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. And it's a picture of four distinct beasts. And as Daniel is pondering these and incredibly agitated and upset by this vision, in verse 9, there's a shift of his perspective. He goes from identifying these four beasts, and we'll get to them later on in our study. But it says, but, but his, his focus shifts in verse 9. He says, and as I looked, thrones were placed. Well, who places thrones? Who places thrones? God does. So as he's seeing these four beasts and he's agitated about it and distraught over it, verse nine, and as I look, thrones are placed and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire, a stream of fire issued, came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and listen to this, and the what? The books were open. Daniel 12. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never have been since. There was a nation till that time, but at that time, your people shall be delivered. Listen to this. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. This is Paul in first Corinthians chapter 15. He's talking about the resurrection of the dead. The judgment and those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, 
shut up and shut up the words and seal the book till the time of the end. I heard verse verse eight. I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, oh, my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. The wicked shall act wickedly. I want you to see this. The sealed scroll is a picture of God's covenantal redemptive will. The sealed scroll is a picture of God's covenantal redemptive will, ready to be revealed at the time of the end. Isaiah prophesied to blind Israel. Ezekiel ate it. It was sweet as honey, and he was commanded to preach it to a rebellious people. Daniel saw it and was commanded to maintain the seal, seal it up. So what do we know based on those passages and what we read in Revelation 5 about the scroll, the sealed scroll. Well, I want to give you five observations about that briefly. First of all, it's held in God's right hand of power. What does that tell us? Only his power can bring it to pass. And I'm going, I'm going to show you from scripture in just a minute how that has transpired. And it, it should make us stand in absolute awe and wonder at God's power. Secondly, I want you to see that the scroll is full of God's decreed will. Front and back, fully complete. In Isaiah 46.10, God says what? Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. God is not winging it as history progresses. He has planned it from the beginning to end, as we might say, soup to nuts. Thirdly, it reveals the expansion of redemption. So Isaiah is prophesying about this to blind Israel. And God says, they're not going to hear you, Isaiah, because they're blind, deaf, and dumb. But I want you to go preach it anyway. Why? Because what was rejected by the nation of Israel meant what? expansion to the Gentiles. In Isaiah chapter 11, verses 10 and 11, it says, in that day, the root of Jesse, we just read about that in Revelation 5, in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall what? The nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people. Listen, from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. Isaiah is prophesying about the inclusion of what? The Gentiles in the plan of redemption. This was before and up to this point blind to Israel. They had no idea that God had a grander plan than just the mere nation of Israel. And it was in their pride and their arrogance thinking they were God's people that they shut him off 
and refuse to hear him and obey him. This scroll reveals the expansion of redemption that God had always planned. This was not a plan B, by the way. I want you to see also as we read Ezekiel that it involves the sweetness of redemption. God told Ezekiel, eat the scroll. In other words, take in my message because you're going to go preach it. To eat it means to take it for yourself. When we come to the Lord's table and we partake of the the cracker and the juice as symbols that we eat, it is the ultimate picture of full, full on faithful engagement in the message. God tells Ezekiel, eat it. And, And the response to Ezekiel was it was sweet. But Ezekiel also said that it contained lamentations and mournings and woe. So how could it be simultaneously sweet to his taste, but also full of lamentations and woe? That is the picture of God's redemption. There's judgment coming on this world as we go from Revelation 5 to 6 to 7 to 8. What we're going to see is that the the scroll is unwound is God's judgment on humanity. It will be full of lamentation and woe. But for the redeemed, it's sweet. It's incredibly sweet. That's why we cast ourselves down before the throne to worship the Redeemer. Because we have been spared that lamentation and that woe. Fifthly. It involves the numbering and the naming of the redeemed. We would call it in Reformed language as the elect. Say, well, how do you know that? Well, Daniel directly refers to those whose names were found written in the book. You mean God specifically wrote down the names of those who he intended to redeem from all eternity past? Yes. And if you are a child of God today, your name is written down. It can't be blotted out. As we talk through the timeline of redemption in just a minute, briefly this morning, I want you to think about your place in that. As I'm studying in my little office, my mind gets frequently blown. It's like an overwhelming, just absolute meltdown mentally of, wow. And then I have to gather myself and reset. And as I I thought about what God has done through redemptive history, and then contemplate the thought that I am included in that, should blow our minds. Verse two, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? The word worthy is the word axios. In the Greek, it means deserving, comparable, suitable. Who is deserving and suitable to open the scroll and break its seal? The scroll is sealed and can only be opened by one that is qualified, authorized, or authenticated. We have our, our, our phones. How do we know that our phones are uniquely ours? Most of you have security passwords on them, right? Who can open your phone? Well, your spouse, if they have your password. But the point is, our phones are password protected so that the authentic individual 
can open that device. The picture here is that there's only an authentic individual that can open these scrolls. It's sealed. It must be opened only by the authenticated one. We, we see this term used in 1 Corinthians 9, 1 and 2, when Paul, talking about his apostleship, says this, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. In other words, Paul was saying there were some accusing him of, of being a fraud. He says, you're my proof. You, the Corinthian church, are the seal of my apostleship, that I have, in fact, met Jesus on the road, that I have been authenticated by the Savior. Look at verse 3. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look. That statement, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth, is a picture of all of God's creation. We see the seraphim in the presence. Are the seraphim created beings? Yes. We see the 24 elders. 24 elders, a picture of created beings? Yes. The seraphim are holy. We talked about that in Bible study this morning. There's no sin in the seraphim. If the seraphim are considered inadequate to do this. We see the 24 elders. They're in robes washed white. They're pure but they're not considered adequate to do this. None are worthy to even look or open the scroll of God. No one in all of creation is found suitable. Why? 1 Timothy 2.15, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. For all of those claiming that God is at the top of the mountain, and you can start out on the, on the base of any side of the mountain. We're all going to the same place. It's a lie. It is an absolute lie. There is one God, one mediator between God and men. And, and the natural response of John as he's having this vision, look in verse 4. It says, I began to weep. The word weep is to mourn, to lament. John, John is falling apart here. Because as the, the angel with the loud voice cries out, who can open the scroll? It's silence. It's absolute silence. It comes to the helplessness with a sense that all is lost. But the lamb is about to step out of the shadows. But John cannot yet see him, hence his despair. There was nobody found worthy to open the scroll. And as John is losing it, we find in verse 5, one of the elders comes up next to him and says, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Whew. Weep no more. The word behold there is, is the imperative verb. It is... Behold, look, it's to get the, the listener's attention. Look, John, stop crying. Wipe your tears away. Behold, 
I was thinking about that statement and the same word is used by John the baptizer in John 1 29 when he says the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said what behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world verse 35 the next day again John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said behold the lamb of God there's emphasis here and it brings up I I hope a natural question. The elder tells him the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, kind of an odd statement at first blush. Why the lion of the tribe of Judah? Why would he say that? There is a really vitally important truth for us to see here. And I want to bring it up as as we wrap up this morning. Let's do just a quick review of the timeline of redemption, if you will. Now, Judah is the son of Jacob. Who did God make a covenant with? We can go all the way back to the Adamic covenant. We can go to the Noahic covenant. We can go to the Abrahamic covenant. But Jacob, when he is blessing his sons at his death, He blesses each one of his sons. And and that blessing is a prophecy. Listen to what he says to Judah. I want you to to think about something for a second. Judah is a loser. Okay? He's a loser. Now, lest we get on our moral high horses here, we, we can all relate to Judah. But I want you to listen to what Jacob tells Judah. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness who dares rouse him. Listen, verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. There is a promise to Judah from Jacob, his father, that from Judah's lineage, there would be what? An eternal kingdom, an eternal throne, the ruler's staff. So who is he talking about? Well, who ultimately becomes the second king of Israel. David. Of what tribe is David? Judah. We're reading and studying about Solomon, David's son, also of the tribe of Judah. But there's more. Verse 11, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vestures in the blood of grapes. There's a twofold promise here. There's a twofold prophecy here. We have a promise fulfilled in David and Solomon coming down through the line of descendancy, but this is also pointing to something else, something far greater. Who? He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. Hmm. Okay, hold that thought. Ruth chapter four. Let's follow this timeline for just a minute. We studied Ruth about a year ago, maybe. 
Ruth chapter four, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, blessed is the Lord who hath not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel and he shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. And verse 17, the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name. A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Obed, father Jesse, Jesse, father David, verse 22. Now, to a passage that gets overlooked so much, Matthew chapter 1, the lineage passage. Turn there just a second. I want to point something out to you. Our natural tendency as we see genealogy chapters is our eyes roll back in our heads and we think, what does this have to do with anything? This has everything to do with everything. That's what I want to point out to you here. In Matthew 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. The lion of the tribe of Judah. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. This passage is going to mention three very interesting individuals in the genealogy of Christ. Number one, Tamar. Do you remember who Tamar was? If you go back to Genesis 38, we won't do that. But Tamar was the daughter-in-law of Judah. I told you Judah was a loser. Judah had three sons. One of them married Tamar. He died. By, his, by, by Jewish law and custom, what was supposed to happen with the other two sons? They were supposed to marry Tamar and raise up descendancy within her family and keep the brother's name alive, right? Remember what happened? The first son didn't want to do it. The second one used Tamar for his own pleasure, but would not grant her a son. And so here she is in her, in her widowhood, and Judah says to her, listen, I've got another son coming up. He's not of age yet. When he gets old enough, I'll give you him, and you guys can continue the family lineage. And you remember what happened? He kind of forgot about it. So here she is on her own. Scripture says Judah goes out to um, at the, the time of the shearing and she finds out about it and she plays the prostitute. And he goes into her and, can, and she conceives and, and we find out he's ready to stone her when he finds out she's pregnant. You remember what happened? She says, well, I have proof and evidence that the man that impregnated me is you, Judah, my father-in-law. Why is that in the genealogy? It's messed up. It is incredibly, as Mark likes to say, it's messed up in this everywhere. That family was completely destroyed and messed up by sin. The second person mentioned is Rahab. What was Rahab's primary means of sustenance? She was a prostitute. And here we have Jericho a major city, one of the obstacles in, the, in, in Joshua's um, march through Canaan. And what happens? She hides, she hides the spies. She ties that 
that that that scarlet um, twine rope in the window, and God knocks the city down and saves her alive. She's a prostitute. And guess what? Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Boaz is the father of Obed by Ruth. We go on just a little bit further in verse 6. And David was the father of Solomon by the right wife of Uriah. So we have Tamar, Rahab, Bathsheba, all mentioned in the lineage of Christ. Why? Why? This is incredibly important for us to understand. God is sovereign here. We look around us and there's all sorts of evil happening. I, I could pick out three stories in the news this week that troubled me. There was a seven-year-old girl kidnapped by a, um, a FedEx contract employee who saw her as he delivered a package and he stole her and murdered her. Seven years old. Try and make sense of that. We had the, the, the Marriage Act passed by the Senate this week, which institutionalizes same-sex marriage. Found out yesterday, freedom, democracy, at heavy risk in our country because people are manipulating information to get us to do something we might not have done in terms of our vote. Evil is everywhere. What is God telling us in Matthew chapter one in this genealogy? I am sovereign over all of it. Remember also included in that prophecy of Judah back in Genesis 49, we see the, the mention of him having his garments red from the wine press. Well, Isaiah 62 picks this up. And this is a picture of Christ. Verse three, I have trodden the winepress alone and from the peoples, no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in, in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come. The encouragement to the, the embattled churches, evil abounds, but God is going to judge it. And in the process of him judging that evil, he is redeeming a people for himself. So what is the application for us? Well, the lion of the tribe of Judah reminds us of the significance of the insignificant. The significance of the insignificant. That this, this is the essence of this message. God keeps his covenant promises. From beginning to end, he works all things after his infinite wisdom. If you get nothing else from this morning, take that away. As we celebrate Christmas coming up later this month, it should be a reminder to us that the, the advent of the Savior is God keeping his covenant promise. If you celebrate nothing else, celebrate the fact that we worship a promise-keeping God. He is sovereign over sin. Judah denying his son to Tamar, David murdering Uriah to steal Bathsheba, and Rahab, a prostitute on the wall of Jericho who helps the spies. Maybe sin has devastated our lives. I want you to see this. He takes the rags of our sin and turns it into the tapestry of his glory. 
That's what God does with sin. He redeems it as he redeems us. All of those things in our past that we would shrink in shame over. He takes and he redeems it for his greater purpose. His redemptive purpose is in the the insignificant. Think of Joshua destroying Jericho and his conquest of Canaan. And here he saves a woman by the name of Rahab. Think about the insignificance of a young lady working in a dusty, hot field. Her name being Ruth. And in her labor that seems meaningless and insignificant, her redeemer sees her. And he sets his love on her. And we get Obed, the grandfather of Jesse, because she was willing to get out and do the work instead of sitting around feeling sorry for herself. Think about that. He's sovereign over the disastrous calamities of life. Think about the kingdom being lost to David when it was given to Saul. You think, well, that, that, that's just history taking a, a left turn that God never could have foreseen. The kingdom should have gone to David and it went to Saul. What do we do? It went to a Benjamite instead of a son of Judah. Think about David as he fled from Saul by the skin of his teeth. He survived and escaped and he lived in the wilderness. What if David had died? God's promise would have been cut off. What if, what if, what if? Think about the order to go to Bethlehem to pay taxes given to a man named Joseph. A town full of booked hotels. A stable unfit for the birth of the king of the universe. Think of the order given by a wicked man by the name of Herod to murder every baby boy under two years old. Think about a 12-year-old boy lost in a crowd, separated from his parents. Think about 30 pieces of silver. Think about the betrayal of Jesus's 12 closest friends who parted ways when when the going got tough. Think about the false witnesses, the unfairness of that rigged legal system, the crooked Roman government. Think about the tree that had been planted and grown that was to be hewn into the cross that Jesus was to be crucified. Think about the nails that went into his hands that some blacksmith somewhere beat into nails from metal or taken out of the ground. Think about the hammer that drove the nails. Think about the hopelessness of those that love Jesus when he was taken and put in the tomb. Think about the tombstone that was too big for any man to move. And then we see a resurrected redeemer who conquered all things. Think about that for a second. He works all things after the counsel of his own will. All things. So many times in that brief narrative that I just read you, things went sideways. And every time we look around us, we see things going sideways. This is out of control. We got to step in and fix this. We got to do something about this. Our natural tendency is to want to do that because from our our low view 
we're seeing things completely differently than God sees them. Things are not what they seem to be, church. They're not. Christ is building his kingdom. He says, my kingdom comes not with observation. This is a call for you and I as a believer to raise our view, to begin to see things as God sees them and not be torn apart by the disastrous calamities of life. I want you to see that, lastly, the the judge says, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. Remember, we saw that repeated claim to the seven churches. To him that overcomes, I will give the crown of life. To him that overcomes, I will um, give a white stone. And we see that constant reminder of conquering. How does the church conquer when they're constantly failing? And, and this is, this is what, what's going through my head as I'm studying this. We look at these churches and we say, it's just like me. How can I be a conqueror? Well, the answer is simple. We are conquerors because we're in Christ and he conquered. John sees a different view of things. He sees all is lost. And then the elder reminds him, no, all is not lost. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. And because he has conquered, you and I have conquered. It is a reminder for the church, the embattled church, to lift up our heads. He reigns. He is working all things for the counsel of his good. He is working all things to the good of his redeemed. And it should elicit one singular response from us. We should worship him. It should elicit that singular response. Awe, wonder, and worship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are wholly inadequate to talk about these things, but we praise you, Lord, because you are revealing and unraveling the mystery of your will. And as you are adding to your church and growing your church, every one of us is numbered and named. And Father, you have provided a body, a redeemer. The sacrifices of blood, of of bullocks and goats, doesn't take one sin away. But our Redeemer has laid down his life so that every one of my sins, past, present, and future, is cleansed, washed, gone. As far as the east is from the west, you remember them no more. So that we will be able to be numbered among the redeemed that surround your throne to worship you without any hindrance of sin. Father, I pray that you would encourage us. You would turn our gaze upward, that we would not be discouraged by the events of this life as they happen around us, that we would not be overwhelmed by the wickedness and the evil that we see around us but that we would rest in the fact that you are sovereign and in control of all things, working all things to the good, your elect. We can do nothing this morning but praise you, and we do that this morning in the name of our Savior. Amen.